Welcome, Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast uh, with my good friend, Jill Chickowitz. Yeah. Believe it or not, it's easier to say than it is to spell. So, hey, I, I really admire what you do. And I know our, our listeners and followers and watchers and people that really have fallen into my story uh, are, are going to love what you're doing. And I had the honor and pleasure to have the Living Undeterred uh, U.S. tour stop in Richmond and participate mm -hmm. in your to end the stigma event, which was awesome. And um, I, I think you and I have a lot of exciting things to talk about. And unfortunately, we'll talk about some things that um, could be difficult. So, right. Jill, welcome to the show. And uh, how's Richmond today? Richmond's good. I mean, I, you, we've been talking. It's a busy day, as always. It's a beautiful day, so that's nice. But just jumping from appointment to appointment and being a mom and doing what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. <laughs> like all of us, you know, yeah. that's the great thing about yeah. people can see how, how we are resolve and kind of our focus on when things occur in our lives yeah. and everybody out there watching can relate. You know, most people are moms and dads, their sons and daughters, their neighbors, their brothers and sisters. Right. Yet sometimes, if not all the time, grief and trauma enter our lives uh, at some point, some, whether it's abuse as a child or traumatic event in your teenage years or something, uh, you know, as awful as what happened to us with death entering our lives. But right. before we get too deep into all that, um, which is easy to do, yeah. um, let's talk a little bit about your purpose and kind of your passion and kind of what inspires you the most about what you do each day. Yeah. So um, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And, you know, I, I do think um, I think we gravitate toward each other because we have similar stories, but no one's the same story. But yet it's all the same stories. You know, the, mm -hmm. the deeper I get into this, the more I talk to families that have lost loved ones to, you know, substance use, addiction, mental health. I'm realizing the the people that we've lost are all similar creatures, you know, kind of kind and fragile and sweet and spirited and just um, so I guess I should say how I started this. Um, so I am the fifth child of a family of five kids and military parents, or my dad was military. Um, my twin brother, Scott, and I are, I say we're the babies because we still are the babies in the family. Um, uh -huh. Scott told everyone that he was my older brother because he was five minutes older than me. Um, he really <laughs> loved to tell everybody that. Um, growing up, you know, we just had an ideal you know, family, like we would move around. My dad was a pilot in the army. Um, you know, we're very strong Catholics go to mass every Sunday dinners every night. I had a stay at home mother. I mean, I think you think when someone battles something, you know, they had some traumatic childhood or some terrible, you know, home life. And honestly, you know, we were kind of the envy of neighbors, you know, we were the family that. Everyone just seemed put together and happy and had things in control when really it was anything but. Um, mm -hmm. And I think with Scott, um, you know, he just beat to a different drum. You know, he was just a little eccentric when we were younger, just a little more goofier than people and attention span wasn't always there. And um, but mm -hmm. I, you know, I think that um, he's I say he's the best of the five of us kids. I honestly believe he was the best out of the five of us with the biggest heart and just had such a wonderful passion for someone, you know, he didn't like bullying. He always looked out for the underdog. He always wanted to care for someone that was, you know, a little different. And I think that was probably his best qualities. Um, he was kind of an ugly duckling, kind of a nerd growing up. And I tell everyone, mm -hmm. you know, he wore sweatsuits. He had the thick glasses, didn't brush his hair. And then in high school, he became really popular and attractive and played football. And, um, fell in love with this girl that was a foreign exchange student from Brazil. And they mm. started kind of this hot affair, not affair, but you know, right. High school romance, yep. whatever you want to call it. I yep. say they're like Romeo and Juliet, like star cross lovers. And my mom asked Scott to cool it. She thought it was too hot and heavy for him that he was 17 and she was 15. And they got mm. into a little bit of an argument. And then the next day she was coming over to speak with Scott because she was so upset and she was killed in a car accident. And oh, man. that's when Holy I, truly, 
believe uh, this is the trauma. Everyone, you know, you talk to people and there's a trauma that's triggering why people turn to, you know, a substance of some sort. Oh, yeah. Yeah. um, And this is this was being 17 years old. And, you know, he was very young. And um, she was literally coming over to speak with him and hit by a car to our house. And I will tell you, the crazy thing is when she came to, you know, America, she spoke no English. So there was a language barrier between the two of them, but it was like this chemistry that pulled the two of them together. Mm-hmm. And Scott never had girlfriends. He never dated, you know, and it was funny. I met her at school that day and she looked at me and she pointed out this guy that she liked. And naturally it was Scott. And then I go home that afternoon and I'll never forget it. He said, I'm in love. I met the woman I'm going to marry. And it was so hmm. weird to be, you know, so it was very traumatic for him. And wow. Um, he definitely should have gotten some counseling. He should have handled those feelings, but what he did was turn to smoking marijuana. Um, that kind of numbed mm-hmm. the feeling. It kind of made him forget the pain he was in. And that's really what started his whole path of, of the and drinking spiral. too. Yes. Yes. And you know, and I not, I don't condone it because, you know, people smoke weed now, but high school people were smoking weed, you know, they were drinking a little bit. It was nothing that was alarming or out of control back then. It was, you know, he was mm-hmm. still doing lots of sports. He was very athletic, did well in school. You know, it wasn't like anything that was hindering him from graduating, uh, you know, high school or stopping him from being, uh, you know, sports or anything. But you could see a gradual decline of, yeah you know, desire, motivation, uh, his appearance, um, you know, they would say the traditional signs of either someone, you know, on that suicide road or someone that's on suicide by substance abuse, you know, which is, you know, and indirectly a lot of people that die from substance use distress, as I like to say, or addiction, it's ultimately suicide by, by that means, you know, which is longer and more destructive, but it still ends in the same outcome. It is. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, he did, um, he he went to college for two years and he decided this isn't for me. This is for the birds. You know, it's not for me. And I kind of wondered if the drug use was probably a way for him not to be able to finish that school and, you know, the degree, I don't know. Um, And he decided to follow my other brother out to California um, to live the good life. And I tell everyone, um, you know, my other brother is a real estate mogul, does very well. And Scott kind of wanted a piece of the pie. Like, let me go out there and get my, Mm -hmm. you know, let me try it out. And he was really successful. He ran gyms and he, he was really into working out, but he also, he would play hard and he'd work hard, you know, a little bit of both, go to Vegas, oh, yeah. yep. gamble a lot. And anyone yep. knows that if you are someone who has an addictive nature, LA and Vegas are probably not for you. <laughs> right. um, I think that lifestyle was not conducive for his addiction. Um, I don't think he knew he was an addict at that time, but you know, they talk about environment and behavior and the people you're mm-hmm. running with. And I think it was like the perfect storm brewing. You had the trauma as a child, you had the addictive DNA, and then you have the environment in which you live in. It was like the perfect storm brewing. It just was going to. Now at this out. stage, were there family members that were trying to intervene or was there anybody that pulled him aside or as a family unit came together and maybe did an intervention. I mean, was he, in that, was he that bad that an intervention was needed or is it more of, ah, maybe it's a phase. Maybe he'll, maybe he'll outgrow yeah. this and maybe he'll. It was more where we said, Oh, it's LA. You know, that's what people do. And, you know, we kind of made excuses. Right. Um, and also because, you know, I, you know, my husband was military and we were right. traveling and PCSing everywhere in the country. And, you know, he would deploy for a year, year and a half at a time. And I had young boys at home. So, I spoke and texted with Scott every single day. Um, hmm. What I didn't realize is the route, the spiral he was going down. Um, my other brother in California, Brett, he was starting to witness it. And, you know, Brett, you know, used to go out with him for a little bit and have some drinks and partying. And then he decided that he would stop because mm-hmm. a lot of people will tell you in LA, you know, that lifestyle will eat you up. You know, it will. Mm-hmm. It, it's very hard to maintain the work-life balance. But um, right. And so Brett was always trying to offer him help. Brett would say he'd pay for it. He, you know, he knew, he knew he had an issue, not to the level of really requiring a recovery or rehab of some sort at that time. It was really more just recreational, but still running a job and still, you know, holding down his responsibilities. Do you think Scott was aware that he was on this destructive path? Or do you think he was just either being enabled maybe by a circle of, of friends that were, that were with him, or do you think he was just naive? I 
said, I don't think he knew he had, you know, an addiction. My mom seems to think that he did know. And I will say we all enabled him. Uh, my mom and I were probably. Oh, yeah. we're. I think we're all guilty. That yeah. Way. Yeah. Agree. And I, I think um, we made excuses. In hindsight, we always realize it the most, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's probably what eats me up every single day is the guilt of the way I enabled him and the way I mm -hmm. encouraged the behavior and, and kind of got him out of his, you know, situations he would get in. But it the missed really, opportunities, I like. Yeah, to say. and like you know, he, you know, he and our twins, and I'm over there paying some of his bills, and I'm thinking he makes really good money. Why is he always mm -hmm. broke? You know, that's a telltale sign. I noticed he started spending less and less time with friends, more alone time. Um, it got mm -hmm. to a point where my other brother uh, would not really kind of cut ties with him a little bit. Didn't let him. My brother has three children. And Scott would come to the football games. He was very close to the kids, but he was starting to act erratic and a little bit out of control. Yeah. And my brother was like, either you get help or, you know, we can't be around us. And so he kind of, I, I don't blame your brother. I don't blame you because, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, as a, I speak on as being a father right. is I got to protect my other kids. And so I, I certainly understand uh, having to make those decisions. Cause you know, yeah. I look at my situation and it's like, I mean, I drew a line in the sand many times, uh, right. with both my son and my wife, but the outcome was still death. And that's where I struggle with is like, you know, maybe I drew the line too quickly. Maybe I was too tough love, but then again, uh, I had to take care of myself and take care of my other two boys. And then everybody else that's in my life as well. Right. Right. And that's the thing is I always thought Brett was being too harsh and the tough love thing I wasn't a fan of. And I hate I hate when people say rock bottom. Let him hit rock bottom, Jill. He's got to I, hit I agree. rock bottom. And I know a lot yeah. of people will use those terms. And maybe it works for their story or how they believe their story went down. Scott never hit rock bottom. And that's the thing is, you know, he never made it to rock bottom because, um, you know, he, you know, it, it took him over before he got to that point. And that's the thing that bothers me the most is, what I would do is send him money. Um, I would send him a Costco gift card because I was like, surely this would be for food and gas. The prop, cause he was always broke. He never had money. And he would kind of call my mom and I and be like, I'm going to be homeless or um, I don't have gas for my car. And of course yeah. we would do this Walmart to Walmart thing where I would send him money that way. And I feel really guilty now because, you know, my husband was like, you know, he needs to figure this out. You can't pay for him all the time. And so it was kind of a way of hiding it for my husband too, was sending him money Walmart to Walmart. And so he wouldn't know what was going to Scott. Well, rock bottom as was for, well, Seth, Scott, my wife was yeah. death. And yes. that's where some people don't understand is we say kind of just, I don't know, metaphorically, Hey, rock, you'll hit rock bottom. Like yeah. rock bottom is some like rock bottom is some celestial experience where the clouds part and all of a sudden you, ah, it's my epiphany moment, you know? Yeah. Like and the that may be in the movies. Uh -huh. Yeah. That may be in the yeah. movies is rock bottom, but for yeah. many, many people, rock, rock bottom is death. And with, you know, 110,000 overdoses last year and 800 Americans die from, by suicide, alcohol and overdose per day in the United States, yeah. rock bottom for many people is death. And so I think as advocates, we need to say, well, let's catch them on the way to rock bottom. <laughs> Let's yeah. don't, let's don't wait. Let's don't, let's have a net there halfway in between. Yeah. And so we don't have the Scots and the Seths and the Prudences and all the other advocates you and I meet, you know, literally Jill every day. Um, yeah. and, and it's, you know, it's disheartening, it's frustrating, but it's also encouraging because then I meet the success stories. I meet the advocates, you know, like Tim Ryan, who was incarcerated, who did heroin, who was saved by Narcan and all these things. And now he's a, a big advocate. And so, yeah. you know, I think, I think sharing our story and making sure that we make the story relatable to maybe somebody that hasn't lost somebody yet, but right. this train is coming. And if you're a parent with young kids and I, I'm talking, you know, two, three, four, five, and six, you have to understand that this train is coming at you very quickly in the form of mental health. Yes. And I don't know what type of train it'll be, if it'll be alcohol or, or marijuana or, um, you know, something else. Um, uh, but, but the train is like almost inevitable. And I think we need to get parents more aligned with what's going to happen and not tell them that you may be one of the lucky ones that, that dodge this, this train. And so that's kind of right. one of the things I'm really hyper-focused on is, 
I, this sounds terrible, Jill, but I see families at the park with two or three young kids and a dog and they're playing catch. And I, I almost feel sorry for them. It's like they have no idea the What's impending coming doom coming around the corner. And I know not everyone is going to go through what you and I went through. No. The majority aren't. But death doesn't have to be there to destroy a family. Right. I mean, there are millions and millions of family where no death has occurred, but their their lives are de are just destroyed and decimated, and and and, yeah. and just so much um, pain and suffering and divorce and financial woes and just those. I mean, the six year journey we went through um, with Seth, uh, just a, the really tough times we had. Yeah. That resonated. It affected my boys. It affected my relationships with other people. It affected my my well being. And even to this day, I, I go back to those moments and, um, you know, I just think to myself, like you said, I don't know if you and I have guilt, but we definitely have reasons to learn from what happened, you know? Right. Um, so as, as you, you go through your advocacy. Right. Because you've learned the, the errors of your way to, you know, like I said, it's right. my cross to bear now and I've taken it on, but it's also like, I'm trying to, and you probably feel the same way, spare the family next to me. Like, listen to right. what I'm saying. Don't become us. Even though people think, oh, you guys are great in your advocacy work. You're doing wonderful things. I would much rather not have done this. I was fine being a <laughs> yeah. wife and a stay-at-home mom and room mom. And I was fine home. being a financial advisor for right. 32 years. I was okay yeah. doing those things. I didn't know. I yep. didn't ask for it. But I feel it's my responsibility. And I feel like it's, it's a purpose. And someone is pushing this train along to keep it going to help others because... You just know you're right. You do look at families and you're like, it's out there. It's coming. You know, I you know. And ready. I never felt that way. I used to look at families and feel I like, oh, I remember my kids were little and how blissful and how innocent and full of glee they are. And they still are. Yet there's this, there's this something going on with that next level. Of, of, right behind them at all times. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, yeah. it, I just, it sucks. It doesn't have to be this way, but you know, you and I, and, and all the other thousands of, of, people we've met that have been touched by this, um, issue, um, are trying to, you know, turn the lens on, on, a, you know, less about Scott and Seth and me and you, but more about, about you. I was just making a comment today on LinkedIn. I made a post a couple of days ago and it's the largest impression post I've ever had in social media. It's almost 30,000 impressions. Wow. And it wasn't, yeah, but Jill, the intent of it was just, it was Seth's birthday. Yes. And I just thought, well, instead of putting a picture of Seth and some poem or some music and just, yeah. you know, I don't want to be Debbie Downer, but it's like <laughs> I wanted to take Seth's birthday and say, you know what, in honor of Seth, why don't you go out and do something for the ones you've lost in your lives? And so I've got this called the nine days of Seth between his birthday and his date of death. And I posted it like I have many other posts and it just, it went completely, I don't know, virals, 27,000 impressions, but for me that's a in lot. my world, it is, that's a lot. um, for some famous people, that's probably a poor post, but for me, that was impactful. And, it, and yeah. I realized after I started looking at the comments and all the direct messages I got that this wasn't about Seth, yeah. this was about, this was about the way that it was presented to inspire yeah. people to use what I went through to make an impact on, on their life. And that was, you know, that was intentional. I, I, I know you feel the same way, but that yeah. the pity and sympathy ship sailed a long time ago. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> I know you well, and you're not looking for that. Um, no, I'll no. take, I'll take, I love you and our condolences and I'll take all that. That's fine. People pray for me. That's great. Yeah. But I'd rather have someone say, how can I help? Yeah. What can right? I do? Can I join forces? And not you, but how can I help other people in my community? How can I? Yeah. And so let's talk about your, to end the stigma, let's talk about your, your an evening, what's it called? An evening for Scott or evening a with Scott or a night for Scott. Talk about that. Talk about your golf outing. I mean, you are just, you're killing it. Um, you're doing an amazing amount of work and, like I said, I'm very grateful that I was able to hook up with um with you guys when we yeah. came out on a tour. Certainly yeah. plan on on helping you out with future projects and and I'm gonna lean on you to help us and some of ours as well. Of course, of course. So um but you so yeah, but back to the Scott, you know, and what happened was is you know, he got um addicted to Oxycontin and after mm. a back injury at his job, workers' compensation put him on it. Um, he was taking it every single day until he was overprescribed and 
Costco pharmacist says, hey, man, you've got like 90 pills, four scripts a week. What are you doing? And just yanks it. And so that's when Scott gets a pill from a friend. And the worst part is, is he says this looks fake. He attaches an article about this pill looking fake to this friend. And I say it's a friend. It was a drug dealer. It's not a friend. Um, and the guy was like, people say it works. And that's all it took because Scott was in severe withdrawal that he took that pill. Yeah, I mean, even if better I, I don't blame him. No, don't do this. Don't do this. You know, it's easy for us to sit there and say, well, why didn't Scott just say no? Well, has anyone no. been in the grips of withdrawals and, and dope sick? And, and I have it, never. It's, so no, I, have I haven't never. either. I've never done drugs, but I've been I, an alcoholic for a long time. Yeah. I know what it's like to, to sit there at night wanting to have a, a, a drink yeah. or going to a casino. I was a compulsive gambler for 20 something years. I know what it's that like to literally sweat walking into a casino yeah. um, or looking through the sports uh, websites on a Tuesday night, looking for something to bet on. Yeah. You know, some sport I don't even follow. I just needed the right. action. I needed the dopamine yeah. hit. I, had like a I can get that. It's like that endorphin release, you know? So let's but talk, yeah. if you don't mind, about the day that, that he passed and kind of what how that transpired and what happened. Yeah, because, you know, it's weird. I think when I tell people, we're always shocked because I think, you know, in our minds, we hear overdose. We're like, oh, it's a guy who, you know, just shot up and laid down and, and went to sleep. And I'm like, there's several different ways of overdosing. You know, there's not right. one way. There's not one right one way, you know. So, so right. yeah, we have Scott's cell phone. We have the play-by-play -play of exactly what happened. So, he gets this pill from a friend, attaches the article, you know, does that. And what year was this again, Jill? What, what 2017, year? February of 2017. Okay. That paints the picture there. Okay. Right. Because you weren't he hearing about the fentanyl, the one pill kills. Campaign, right. Things like that. That right. was not on anyone's radar. I mean. No one knew what fentanyl was. No, no. So um, he was kind of like, he kind of spearheaded this whole thing with, you know, when now we hear about nonstop, but, and I think if he'd known about it or even heard about it back then, maybe he could have questioned it more, but you and I both know, you know, when you hear about withdrawals, like he would tell my mom that withdrawal would be so bad that he would blow his brains out if he didn't think he'd go to hell. That's what he used to tell my mother, um, wow. you know, and because he was a devout Catholic, close to God, he felt, you know, that that would happen. And I'm like, that's why we were like, this is a problem. You know, we have a problem. So he goes into Starbucks. He had taken this pill, what he thought was an Oxycontin. He gets in line to get a cup of coffee. He talks to my mother briefly and she said he sounded really low, but it's because, you know, he, she thought he was in line at Starbucks and then he walks out. It's an outdoor shopping center. So there's a Trader Joe's there. He's in Starbucks. Um, there's a restaurant. People are dining outside eating dinner. It's like 645, mm. you know? And so he's parked right up front. He walks to his car. He opens the door. He sets the cup of coffee on the top of his car and he drops to one knee. So this is all within minutes. This is not a very long span of when he took that pill. And wow. for 20 minutes, he is kneeling on the curb at Starbucks and kneeling. And so everybody's just watching him. They're not helping him. They're not calling 911. And this is the part that chokes me up the most because being devout and I'm sure, you know, he probably was praying. He probably was asking God, yeah. you know, I, in my mind, you know, his last moments really bother me because I hope that he passed out really fast because yeah. I was like, you know, was he scared? Did he, he just spoken to my mom? Did he wish he was, you know, there's so many things that run through your yeah. head. But yep. then after 20 minutes, a guy comes over because he's doing that death rattle. I don't know the formal name, but it's, it sounds like they're right. And he taps yep. on him. He goes, Hey man, are you Okay. And Scott falls over and he had suffocated and died from fentanyl toxicity. Hmm. So then everybody calls 911 and then the ambulance comes yeah. and does Narcan and all that. And by this point, he'd been without oxygen for too long. And so um, he was. So they did Narcan back in 17. They, they had Narcan well, they did on them. The, I don't know if it was Narcan. This was like the shot they do in the vein in the neck. So I don't know exactly okay. what was administered. Because yeah. um, most police officers weren't carrying that. Back yeah, on. this was the um, ambulance. So this is the, you know, the oh, okay. drivers. Yeah, the police. So they both came on site responding to the 911. And apparently the ambulance got him to the hospital really quickly. But the worst part is two days pass and no one is notified. No one, my family, Scott had a vehicle. He had a wallet. He had a phone. He was dressed pretty nice. Like um, nobody attempted to call anybody to, um, wow. to, to claim him. So my mother in Virginia is calling everywhere, sending his picture to every Starbucks in that area and looking for her son. And so we didn't terrible. find out. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, so you know, I think because the way he died, he was treated like a junkie, you know, just put a tag on his toe and just, you know, he was worthless, yeah. you know, in his mind when realized there's a family that's, you know, really hurting, you know. How's the rest of the family and mom and dad and everybody doing? You know, everybody handles grief in their own way, as you and I both know. I right. handle it through doing advocacy work and talking about his story as much as we can, you know, saying his You're name. just kicking it right in the face. That's what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because. Yeah. For six months after he died, I went down this really weird place and I guess you'd call it depression now, but I could not look at anyone. I couldn't let anyone touch me. I didn't want my children near me. I thought I was going to die. I didn't want to live. Now, did you have, did you, did you yourself, are you in recovery? Did you ever have personal issues with? Okay. No. Okay. No, which is weird being twins, you know? And, um, yeah, actually I'm actually. It shows it's not always genetic. I mean, it shows it's not always genetic. Yeah. I mean, even if. I can barely tolerate a Percocet from anything. Like, you know, I'll pass out and play the food. I'm very sensitive to medicine. Can't take Benadryl. Mm. I'm really, really funny with it. So, um, but yeah, so after this happened, you know, I remember we had his funeral six months after he died. We had to bring his uh, ashes home from California. And I woke up the next day and was like, this is not the end. This is not where his story ends. If it happens to my family, it's happening to everyone. Um, We got to do something. We got to talk about it. We mm-hmm. got to raise money or funds for a scholarship. Um, we've got to get the community involved. It just can't happen like this. So, started your journey of uh, advocacy, uh, as I like to say, Joe. Purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. Um, yes. That's on the back of all my shirts, and every single person I've met uh, in this industry, which I hate that word, but the mental health space. Yeah has a lived experience story, whether it's their own, like heroin addiction or, or something yeah. happened, or it's somebody happened in their family. Right. It's a hundred percent, hundred percent. I don't, I don't know of a passionate advocate in this space. that doesn't have some personal, um, attachment to the right. insidious nature of addiction and substance distress. Notice I don't say disorder anymore. I'm trying to get that word out of my vocabulary. I say attention deficit and I stop there. Yeah. Um, I just think, you know, I don't want to get off on a completely different tangent, but since it's my show, maybe we can. Um, <laughs> but about labels and stigmas, it's like, yes. I get so yes. frustrated. I get so frustrated with the simple things that we could, we could start to alleviate. And the simple things we can control is our terminology and how yes. we label things. And it's like attention deficit. Why, why, I mean, especially when we attach it to kids, it's like, why can't we just leave it at attention deficit? Why, why can't we just stop right there? I mean, why does it have to be a disorder? Well, obviously, you know the answer, Jill. Yes. It's a diagnosis. It can be filed for insurance potentially to have. And we so have that's the game that we play. Such. Yeah, right. And which is just BS because if you're 12 and you're told you have attention deficit, and it can be very, very beneficial to you the rest of your life if harnessed correctly, i.e. my dad to me, right. or you have attention deficit disorder. And unless you take this pill, you're going to eat right. your friends at midnight because you're going to turn into a werewolf, right. uh, which is what Seth was told. Why? What? Why the, why the hell don't we see this as a society? That, and, and you know what? So if a doctor comes to, to, comes to my wife and I and says, your son has a te- attention deficit disorder. Why do, why are we obligated to actually a even believe him? Right. And B wh- why, why can't we just say no, doctor, he has attention deficit. Yeah. That's what he has. Because we need to medicate them. We have to fix them. They're wrong. We have to fix it. And it's funny. Oh, we got to fix this. We have to yeah, fix this problem. We do. And we just had we this planning meeting with my um, board and my consultant. And we were talking about language. And this is one thing we actually talked about that substance use disorder. It's almost like we want to put it in this pretty little package and use that word because that's the way of like watering down the real raw addiction. You know, like we right. were talking about language and how important language is in identifying this and, and helping people. It's funny. We had just a full on like. I'll give you a short, that. a short example. I use when I do my talks. Um, I had a lady reach out on Facebook one time and she said, Hey Jeff, I follow your story and admire what you're doing. And I want to know if I could get some help. And first of all, I'm not a doctor. I'm just a dad from Iowa. You know, I, I don't have any clinical background. I have lots of lived experiences, but I don't have any right. you know, scientific or medical or physiological background in this area. So she said, um, my daughter died and I have survivor's guilt 
to the point where I think I should have joined her. So I didn't get to, I don't know how, what we, whatever, whatever she even died of. I didn't get that far. Right. And she said, what, what would you say to me to, to help me move on from quote survivor's guilt? So I, I thought, wow, that's a tough one. You know, again, I'm not a therapist and I made it clear when I responded that I wasn't, but I said, let's try this. This is free. It's this non-medical. I'm not going to prescribe anything to you. No therapist. And it's something you can do immediately. And I said, let's take the word guilt and let's replace it with the word opportunities. So now instead of survivor guilt, you have survivor opportunities. Try that for a week and then let me know. That's simple. Instead yeah. of saying survivor's guilt, which now is this weighted baggage of this torturous concept of, of, you know, why should, why did this happen to her? Why shouldn't I be with her? What right. could I've done? It's just that, that stupid word guilt that somebody put in her head because it wasn't in her head till somebody told her she had survivor's right. guilt or she yeah. read it somewhere. Right. So somebody put it in there and, um, just as fast as it went in, it can be, it can be taken out. I like and that. So she did I that for a week. Yeah. yeah. And so why can't all this be looked at as opportunistic, even death, even addiction, even the, the mental health crisis, depression, anxiety. Why can't we just, I guess here's my argument, Jill, if what we were doing was working, we wouldn't need to play tricks in our head and do these, do these games that we can do to change it. We would just keep doing what we're doing and 800 a day would go to 700, would go to 600, go to 500. Right. We'd have addiction and substance use distress eradicated. It ain't working. It, none of this is working. And the numbers across the board, unless you really want to get nitpick and find, you know, 17 year old African-American males, suicide rates dropped 2%. Okay, great. I'll give you that. Maybe I just made that up by the way, but it's like, we really have to nitpick. Great. How'd you know that? <laughs> I just made the, is it true? I just made it up. Um, I don't know, but but the reality really is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the reality is, is that we have to work really hard to find the good news in all this because most of well, it's don't not say heroin, heroin overdoses are down because the opioid crisis like is up, you know, but like, it's, oh, heroin came down. We're like, oh, OK. Well, I saw a stat. Well, because of what happened, yeah. prescription opioids are down 50 percent. And I said, congratulations, deaths are up 100 percent. 100 percent. Right. Because you don't understand when you stop giving like like happened to your brother, you stop giving him oxy for pain. That's legitimate pain. Yeah. And something he was prescribed that he shouldn't have been prescribed because he was told it was not addictive. And you take that away from him. Where the hell do you think he's going to go? He's going to go to the street. That's right. exactly that's what exactly Scott what did. did. I don't blame I don't blame him for anything that he did. I don't either. You know? And I will tell you, I had this troll. I'd, I'd have done the same like, thing. Yeah. I had this guy email me recently. You know, the trolls come for you when, you know, you start to get a little bit of attention. And he said, bring it know, on, bring it on trolls. I know. And I get all upset. And I'm like, I'm so nice. Why do you do this? Um, and the guy said to me, you do not give any responsibility to your brother for his own death. Of course you do. Of course you do. Right. And uh, I was like, I don't know where that relevance or why you're saying that to me. I don't know. Right. Who you are. You know, but right. um, I know he had some responsibility and, and some people say, right. oh, you paint him as a saint. I don't paint him as a saint. Nope. I remember him Absolutely. in the way that he used to be and the, right. he was before the addiction took him over. But that's what mm -hmm. I have to tell. Right. No, I, I get you. I, I certainly yeah. feel you because um, I haven't had too many trolls, but um when I have made a comment on somebody's post that was kind of confrontational, especially recently with harm reduction and things like that, where you have a pretty solid line in the sand. Right. Um, I mean, some people will take some, some pot shots and stuff, but you know, yeah. I've kind of, you know, unless, unless they've lost somebody, uh, my credibility, it, it just, I, they're not credible to me unless they can walk in the shoes, you know, even, yeah. even one shoe, even one shoe, Yeah. you know, maybe you lost a, a mom, a dad, brother, sister, it doesn't have to be a son or daughter or your wife, just somebody you've lost in your immediate family circle to the grips of mental health. And then I give you a little more credibility, but right. you know, if you have a PhD and MD and all this stuff, but you're happily married, all your kids are alive and you've lost nobody, then I, I have a hard time. I have a hard time, even if you're smarter right. than me, under, understanding that you think you understand grief and trauma and all this stuff experience when you haven't lived it. Experience speaks volumes. Experience speaks volumes. You can look at a textbook and then you can look at real life. And that's what I say. Like some people say, well, you do public speaking. You do this. You don't have a background or degree in it. I'm like, I live <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, you do. In life, in yeah. life, you do. I'm, I'm starting to become a 
an expert, buddy, but no. Um, but you know, I, I agree. And so, you know, and that's how this all started is after he died, I said, you know, I want to start something, you know, to keep his legacy. You know, I want to help others that can't afford services and I want to raise awareness on the disease because I was ignorant. I will tell you firsthand, I was judgy to people that were battling drugs. It's those people. I was too. I really I was it. too. I had fully My admitted. son and my wife, I was judgmental to them. Yeah. And I kept saying, you know, why can't you just pull your shit together? Sorry, I'm afraid to say Right. That, you know, why can't no, you, you can. just go to work? Like I kept thinking Scott just wanted to party and didn't want to grow up and had the Peter Pan yeah. syndrome. And here I am with a, a wife and kids and my husband's at war all the time. And how are we twins? You're living in LA and right. good life and won't go to work. And here I am holding the fort down. Like it felt very not fair in my world to see like what was going on with him when I didn't really get it. I didn't get it. And the frustration, and I, I know you'd agree with this, was where do you go? Who do you, who do you call? What, what's, right. it's like, you know, as a dad, I'm like, okay, my son is, my son is having, and I watched, you know, my older two brothers had some experimentation with drugs and alcohol, my older two right. brothers, but you know, they, they're still alive. They've, they've, they're both of them have changed the way they were doing that. So I kind of thought, well, maybe Seth is going down that road and, you know, I, you know, I, I drank beer occasionally with him on a fishing trip in Minnesota, got right. drunk with him a few nights up there. He was like 17 yeah. and I don't regret that. I mean, that's, you know, I, I made a decision at that point. I thought it was a rite of passage that you have a beer with your dad, like, you know, rusted in a vacation with, with Chevy yeah. Chase, you know, <laughs> yeah, honest right. to God, that's how I kind of thought, that's you know, but I didn't realize, yeah. I didn't realize the intensity of what his drinking was like. And then when he got drunk up there and we were fishing and he got up the next morning and we made breakfast and joked about it, I guess I didn't realize right. that's not what I should have been doing. However, I learned from that right. and it's not a rite of passage. Getting drunk with your children is not a rite of passage. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and you're, you're, you're the parent, you're not the best friend. Um, and you know, if I had, this, if I had it over again, which if there is a reincarnation or an afterlife and I get a chance to live another life, then hopefully I can remember those moments. But the reality yeah. is I can't go back. No. I can't go back and relive those moments. I have to just respect the fact that I made the best decision at that time of my life when I was an alcoholic as well. Um, now my lens is completely changed. And if yeah. Seth and I, and even my wife, if she was back, you know, I, I, I would certainly do things differently, right. but I don't know if I would do the same things differently if I was given the same opportunities at the same time in my life again, I probably wouldn't. I'd probably just repeat the same mistake. I say the same thing. I think I'd probably do it the same way, even though, right. you know, yeah. I mean, it's just the way it is. Yeah. No, I yeah. totally agree with that too. And, and every, you know, my mom will come up and say, you know, I think I didn't love him enough as a baby when he would cry. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, first of all, I have the mother, you've met my mom, the mother yeah. all mothers that had five kids that is, even to this day, the most extraordinary mother you've ever met in love. I just want to hug her right now for making that comment because it tears my heart out. Yeah. She's like, maybe when he was crying, maybe when I was rocking him, right. it was too hard. Maybe I did. Yeah. Rain. I'm like, mommy, yeah. I'm an addict. Like, right. I just, it's that parents thing. And you know, she just feels responsible for it. And you know, I said, mom, if anyone got the shaft, it's me. I'm the fifth kid. <laughs> I just <laughs> went under the radar, just, you know, doing my own thing at all times. But, um, but yeah, so, you know, after his passing, that's what it was. It was like, I, my sister had just had a baby three weeks before Scott died, Luca, and Luca will never know Scott. And I hated the idea that my kids were five and eight and Scott had just come home for Christmas, thank goodness, and spent some time with my kids and stayed with me mm -hmm. for a few days. You know, California, we only saw him once a year, even though we talked all the time. Um, my kids were so young and I couldn't handle the fact that they thought their uncle was just a druggie that died from drugs. You know, like Scott right. was the guy that came to every duty station we were at. Every deployment, he would come to me because he thought I was scared to sleep alone at night. And he wanted to come and help me out with my kids and make sure I was okay. Like, he's that guy that if you looked at me sideways, he would come tell you, don't look at my sister that way. You respect my sister. You know, like, he was so good. He was so good. And I couldn't, and he worked for homeless shelters. And he did so much, like, devoting his time to others I hate it that all, that's all you would remember is he died from a drug overdose. I could not allow that to be his legacy. And I won't. Let me ask you this. I'll ask you this question. Yeah. Um, I know how I answer it and I always like to see other people's perspective, but mm -hmm. do you, do you, do you feel as if he's still alive? Yes. 
Yes. Yeah, of course. Yes. I've got the same, the same feeling, um, with, uh, with Seth. And that was one of the actual dynamics that helped me continuing yes. talking about Scott mm -hmm. is as if he's still alive yeah. works for you and me. But there are some people like with my wife, it was the opposite. And I ran into very difficult, um, ways to deal with that as a husband. Yeah. Because I wanted to honor Seth by writing a book, doing a podcast, which I've done all these things when my wife was still alive. I even bought the RV for the tour when she was still alive. Although I'd never had a chance to tell her about the tour. Yeah. I was nervous, to be honest with you, because I knew she wasn't. And I, I'm not trying to anyone listening to this, please don't go. Well, you shouldn't throw your wife. Well, you know what? No. First of all, it's my wife. She was my wife. Um, not it, but she was my wife. I love her immensely. Still love her. Yeah. Miss her immensely. I feel I have a right to talk about her. And and plus who else is going to talk about her? It's Nobody is. You know, it's so every time that I have an opportunity to talk about her, I want to, because yeah. I don't want her to die. I don't want Seth to die. I don't want Scott to die. Yeah. So there's a part of me that thinks in my heart that, you know what, by continuing talking about prudence and Seth, um, I keep them alive. I keep them alive. And, and again, I think for Jeff Johnston and for Jill Chickowitz, these are therapeutic ways. If you're listening to this right now and your therapeutic way is to not talk about your deceased child. And I respect that as well. Uh, but then replace that void and that gap with something constructive. Right. Now right? they have that quote. What do they say? A man's not truly dead. If you never when the last time you say his name or whatever, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. I say that about yeah. Scott all the time. The work we do, we get to say their names all the time. Everyone in my oh, event yeah. will have Scott's name in it. Um, we're currently working on an education program and I've got a team and I'm trying to bridge the gap and, you know, talk to some of the students, you know, Chesterfield County has a recovery high school that they opened this year and there's seven. There's one down in Florida too, that I just had, a, I had Tina Miller on my podcast. She runs a victory, Incredible. victory high school. Um, yeah, it's a so, recovery high school. It's amazing. And I want to work more with the schools and get some sort of, um, I don't know. I'm talking about like a coping corner or something with Scott, Scott's coping, something with Scott, everything I do. I mean, the nonprofit, I wanted Scott's name in it. And my consultant and I talked at length and she said, you do a night for Scott. She's like, but if you, if you make that your nonprofit's name, nobody will know how to find you. You've got to put something with stigma or addiction or something where if someone's looking for a keyword in a search, they'll find you. And even though I hate it, taking Scott's name out of the nonprofit name, everybody knows all of our events have Scott's name, fairways for Scott golf tournament. Uh, you know, everything's yeah. got Scott's name in it. Yeah. That's my way. I went through that as well. Life. I went through that as well, Joe, because I, I'm pretty convinced that raising awareness is a dead horse. The ship has sailed. It's yeah. not working. You know, yeah. look at fentanyl, for example, right now, if I pulled the average American, have you ever heard of fentanyl? Yes. And no, it's going to be 90%. Yes. Yeah. Five years ago, it was zero, but deaths are up, you know, hundred percent. So knowing more about fentanyl seems to be not working. Knowing right. more about these things isn't working. What we have to do is bring attention to these issues. And the reason why this is a different psychological method, raising awareness is in your face. So if my RV had a picture of Seth on it or a right. picture of prudence and I drove around the United States, that's like in your face, that's aggressive. It's, you know, and people do it. They'll pay money and buy a billboard and put their son's face up there. I, oh, yeah. I'm not criticizing those people. I'm not criticizing right. those people. I'm just saying for Jeff Johnston in my little bubble of advocacy, that doesn't work for me. I would feel very uncomfortable driving around with a billboard with my son's face on it um, because I think that would be just a little, I think I can get the same point across, if not more, by bringing people in, by luring them into my story, by making it relatable to their story. Right. So the success of Living Undeterred, the success of all of our projects hasn't been with me, um, you know, directly pushing Seth's face out there, but indirectly bringing people in. And once they're into the story, living unturned, what's it all about? Wham. Then I'm all over them. And I can tell them all about it. Right. And, and I think, you know, to end the stigma, what you were doing was the same way. You know, you, you get people to say, well, what's to end the stigma about? Right. If someone says a night, you know, like, let's say you have a, an event and it's, you know, um, something about Seth. Well, they already know. Right. It's like, it's not, it's not really an inquisitive name. That's going to get them to ask questions. They're, right. they're, well, something happened with car accident, cancer, somehow the son died. And they'll leave it at that. But if I have a name that's intriguing and they, and then we can bring them in that way. I think, and am I tricking people? Absolutely not. I'm not convinced raising awareness works. And when I get interviewed now about, well, Jeff, I appreciate you raising. No, I'm not. I'm bringing attention to these issues. Yes. 
I agree. You're right. Cause we've been, we've been fighting and raising awareness and working. It's not working. And yeah, no, you're totally right. And it's funny. We kind of updated our mission statement for two in the stigma. And we talked about alleviating barriers, you know, and everybody says, well, what does that mean? I said, it's in, I've talked about it at length with my team. I said, it's, it's a doorknob that opens the conversation to so much more, right? You know, what right. are the, there's a lot of barriers. There's a lot of stigmas going around, you know, and there's a lot of shame and guilt and people feeling like they're moral failings when they're not. So, you know, we just got to do better at what we're doing. You know, I totally agree on that. So let's talk about one angle of this issue with mental health. Cause there's kind of two roads we can go down. Right. I want your thoughts on what's your thoughts on. Well, I want your thoughts on your thoughts. How's that? <laughs> um, <laughs> so one, one is, and I talk about this a lot. So if you watch my podcast, this is a kind of a rhetorical question, but I kind of like to get your, your thoughts on this. Um, one thought is when Seth died, uh, I, I was angry, you know, I was an angry dad from the Midwest. I, I wanted to go down to the Mexican drug cartels and be Rambo. I mean, literally yeah. I was that mad. Yeah. Um, I wanted to build a four mile wall across Mexico to keep out all the, all the drugs coming across. I wanted to go to China and get them to stop selling, you know, fentanyl, which I'll talk a little bit up. They really aren't. They're selling the chemicals to make fentanyl. Right. Um, that, and that's, that's another naive, I went down that supply side road where it's like, okay, we got to have, we got to throw drug dealers in jail. We got to do this. We got to, every drug has to be illegal. Boom. You know, and all of a sudden I thought to myself, that's so reactionary. Right. It's so human. It's so normal to want to go out and just and just be very aggressive on this. And I thought, again, I'm not sure if that's where I want to spend the rest. I'm 56 years old. I got, you know, 40 years of of really good focus on this. Mm -hmm. um, that gets me to 96. Maybe I'll slow down by 96. <laughs> um, <laughs> Maybe not. Um, but but uh, you know, so the supply side, but then I started I started going getting active and and Jill, there was all, everybody's going down that road. Everybody, right? Every mom on Facebook's mad about fentanyl. Everybody's mad. And I, I, I certainly get that. I'm not, but I'm talking about me where I want to spend my time. And then I thought, okay, what's the one thing we're missing here to, as a society? We're missing the kids. We're missing the demand. We're missing why these kids are making the choices that they're making. Now, granted the new, and even since I came up with this thought, the goalposts have shift mid game in that kids now are dying that aren't addicts. They're not drug. They're not addicted. Right. They're just buying Percocet on Snapchat at 13 and dying. So I yeah. hear me. I, I understand that. I understand that. That's not a demand issue. That's just, um, that's, that's literally murder at that point. Um, but so going back to the majority of kids that die by drug, alcohol, and, and even suicide, um, and I think NAMI has a, has a statistic that 50% of all mental illness is, uh, started or initiated by the age 14. Yeah. So 50% of all mental illness by adults was started by the age 14. So if we know that half of our society, that their mental health problems started 14 and, and maybe a little bit before, but we, we spend like 10% of our resources, our energy, our focus, our advocacy because all we're doing is building more rehab facilities, more recovery centers, you know, hanging right. out in Narcan. We're doing all these going after the drug cart. We're doing all these supply side things, which I think we have to have. And there's a lot of people doing that. It just and wasn't like for rallying me. at the Capitol in front of the Chinese yeah, embassy. I, and I get it. No more, I get no it. But more. right. But I tell my boys, I tell my boys right now, since I've never drawn, done drugs, I said, you know, marijuana could be free on every street corner in the United States. I'm still not doing it. At least yeah. that type of drug. Um, now, psychedelics is a whole different deal. I did a podcast on that. That's a whole different yeah. road road for mental health right. that I'm, I'm talking about. But going back to my question I wanted to ask you, which is turning into a very long statement. Um, <laughs> what's your thoughts on, on that dynamic between where does Jill want to spend her advocacy on the supply side? Or you think, are we think we're missing something on the demand side, understanding the human behavior? So I feel like, like I, I feel passionate about both. Let me just say that. But yeah. as far as where I feel I want my organization and my mission going, I, I feel a passion to adolescents, you know, with, with younger adults and younger children. I feel like right. um, we're, we're failing them in their earlier years. So then later on, you know, they're developing or they're not understanding or they're turning to things that they shouldn't have. So 
with what I'm planning is like the education program, getting into schools, trying to do early education prevention so they never get on that path and they never go down right. that route. And I want to get to the root of the trauma the root of what's hurting them that they initially turned this way. So like, mm-hmm. I know it's such a broad thing to say, Oh, let's stop, you know, let's, let's raise awareness, which we've discussed. We don't want to raise awareness, but you know, right. I feel with me and with our, cause you know, my organization is not recovery or rehab to end the stigma right. about what the name says, ending the stigma yeah. and shame that people are feeling to normalize the need for help. What is that stigma? Right. Could be anything. We're happy to be talking mm-hmm. about substance use because that's, the focus that we're doing. But so ours is really more, I felt like if we had gotten to Scott with that trauma, when his girlfriend was killed, that he initially went to marijuana. If we had gotten to him sooner and addressed it and said, Hey, your feelings are normal. You're allowed to have these feelings. What are your coping skills? So for me, it's about trauma, coping skills, um, you know, allowing a safe space and trying to get to these children before they go on Snapchat and, you know, even my son, he's got homecoming this weekend, he's 14. And I'm like, Hey Carter, I want to talk to you. You know, you could, there's an after party. And even my husband was like, Oh, he's not getting into that Jill. Yeah. Really? Well, now you don't have to get into it. You just have to make one mistake. What? And that's what I tell right. him. I mean, you and I both know the whole one pill kills campaign. Right. I'm on that, Can you see me now group on Facebook? I'm talking yeah. to parents, their kids are gaming in a basement and taking a pill while they're playing, you know, their PS5 and dying yep. in a chair. One yeah. pill. Yeah, wow. So that that is where I feel my focus and our organization's mission is going today. Will I elaborate and grow later on? Probably, but I feel like I've got to focus on one strong, you know, side of the 100% agree. Like. And then because Jill, then our, then our, our passion gets watered down if we're trying to save everybody on every spectrum of mental health, substance use, distress, and and addiction. And, you know, on, on, I can, I'll, I'll support, I will, um, certainly, uh, do what I can to get those moms and dads that want fentanyl to be a weapon of mass destruction. And they're kind of going down that road. They're betting, you know, they're all their passion on that one thing. And and that's, I'll, I'll support them as best I can. Right. But even if fentanyl was a weapon of mass destruction, it's just like taking opioid prescriptions and taking them down to 50%. If we turn, if we get all the fentanyl off the street, it's naive to think that those that are looking for pain solutions aren't going to go somewhere else. And I just like, that's right. That's where I just, I don't want to get in arguments with these people that have already got this, this invested time and money and energy in, in this fentanyl weapon of mass destruction objective. And, and again, um, but it's like, okay, let's say you win. Do you think all the addicts out there that are in pain or are going to go through dope sick or go through the, the tremendous painful withdrawals of, right. of not having their, their drug of choice, which could be heroin or maybe fentanyl. I mean, right. you know, before people were dying of fentanyl, there were addicts that were using fentanyl in their yeah. drugs. Um, yeah. It just wasn't as, as strong as what's out there today and, and uh, wasn't being put in as much, uh, apparently. And actually, um, when there's a drug dealer that has someone die from fentanyl and actually they get more customers as a result of it because they know they've got the strong stuff, which is mind blowing to me. Was, yeah. That that's true. Yeah. I was talking to Tim today, uh, Tim Ryan, in which I'll have him on shortly. And, um, he was saying, you know, when his son died, Nick of, uh, overdose, Tim was called down to the police station and they had Nick's girlfriend and two friends in the room, in the room with the glass up, you know, they couldn't see Tim. Yeah. yeah. And they said, your son's heroin or I think it was heroin. I don't want to misquote, but his son died from an overdose. Your son purchased the drugs from either the girlfriend or the two friends. We're going to arrest them. And Tim said, no, you're not. Tim said, we're going to get him help. And that shift right there is what we need more of. And what we want to do is we want to, we want to incarcerate these people. And I, I understand the impulse. I mean, if you got me Seth's drug dealer and sat, sat down in front of him, and I had a chance to incarcerate him. Man, it'd be hard not to death penalty yeah. that guy or gal. It'd be very difficult for me not to. Exactly. Um, but part of me wants to believe that that if we really want to fix this, you know, everybody in this circle of addiction uh, needs to have the services to be helped. Um, and again, it's hard to, it's hard to say that to someone who's lost someone. The anger that's there, but for Tim to say that at that moment, I mean, that was like the same day. Wow. Um, that's my strong. admiration grew. Yeah, it is. That's very strong. And right. Tim knows, Tim knows that maybe this situation is the sacrificial lamb 
to make a bigger a bigger impact on changing everything. It's funny you just use that term. I think my mother says that about Scott all the time. He was the sacrificial lamb that got, you know, me and my family and friends and team to start wanting to make the change and start opening the dialogue because we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to say it. It's nasty. We don't want to say how he died. We don't want to talk about addiction. It's ugly. But you know what's more uncomfortable is talking about someone's funeral. And that's what I say every right. time. It's not a comfortable conversation, but letting them die isn't either. And so we've got to open the dialogue. We've got to say it. And honestly, you know, if I hadn't lost my twin brother, I wouldn't be in this arena. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Because like you said, I wouldn't either. personal. No. When it hits your home, you look at the world a little bit different. You know, you don't judge them anymore. And you look at it and you say, you know what? It came to my backyard. So this is a little bit different now. And those ones that are still judging, it hits them. And then they start calling you, asking for help. And you don't want it to, but it, it is. It's like you said, it's, it's, the, it's like the Grim Reaper. He's like walking down mm -hmm. your street. What house is he going to hit? You don't know. But you just want to keep talking to avoid it. That's all we can do and, and help others. But like you said about, um, I don't know, with the Sheriff Leonard, you know, with the HARP program in Chesterville County, he fully believes in rehabilitating them while they're incarcerated because it's a disease that they need to be mm -hmm. well of um, because they're committing crimes based on, you know, drug use that they're using. And so I firmly believe in rehabilitating them because I do think we need to get them well. Locking them up for 20 years isn't getting them well. It's locking them yeah, up. Yeah, we, we look at it as a moral failing from society's perspective and not as a disease or an addiction and just like, Oh, you should have just not went down that road or, or maybe, um, you know, like your brother thought about going to hell. I mean, that morality yeah. issue comes in where people really are thinking that, that, you know, there are people like myself that yeah. I made the choice not to do drugs. I made the choice to quit drinking. I made the choice to quit gambling. I'm, I'm me. That's all I can speak for. I can't say everybody else has the ability to do that. Um, Every believe it or not a lot do. Yeah. A lot of people quit cold turkey. Yeah. They don't get enough credit. They don't get enough credit because the assumption is that that's rare. But actually, if you look at the statistics, a lot of people walk away from alcohol and all these things quite easily. Um, they're not tortured every day. I don't go to meetings. Yeah. Um, I figured out ways to kind of trick my own brain to do things each day. I have two hours of self-care a day, Jill. I don't miss it. I don't miss it. Two hours a day, self-care. Right. I blocked off. Um, and to me, it's, it saves my life. And so in that two hours, I'm pretty much free to do what I want. Sometimes it's an hour in the morning, hour at night, but I have two hours a day of self-care. And for me, it's typically meditation, running on my elliptical, um, you know, doing something, either reading a book on these topics or something about self-care, but I, I make sure I do my two hours a day. It's just part of my day. And, um, I head off a lot of these problems by being proactive like that. And I, and again, I'm not anything special. Um, I've just kind of found I ways and are. I prioritize. <laughs> well, I prioritize I well, I guess, in regards. I prioritize well in regards to I want to live. I want to see Brighton get older. I want to see Brighton get married. I want to see Seth's daughter uh, have kids. I want to be that grand, a great grandpa. I want to yeah. see Roman, uh, Roman marry his boyfriend. I want to see Ian marry his girlfriend. I, I want to see my dad's 90. I want to see him live to be a hundred. I mean, I'm not going to see any of this stuff if I'm drunk and, and high and, and negative and angry and bitter. Or you're missing life when you are. And you know, it's funny. Some people will say, well, why do you raise money, you know, to help those struggling when, you know, how many times does it take to go through rehab before they're well? And I'm like, the huh. problem is, is I see recovery is possible. I see it every single day. I work with people yeah. recovery every single day that are contributing members of society. And, and coming out on the other side. So I know it's possible. I work with them all the time. And you can't be naive to believe that not everyone gets well. A lot of people get well. A lot of people don't, but a lot of people still do. And that's really the mission. And it's naive for people. It's naive to think that recovery is like a day where you're not recovered and the day you're recovered. I know. It's a process. It's not a lifestyle. It's every night. freaking day. You work at What's it. What's that? It's not a pill you take. Yeah. I mean, everyone's like, well, yeah, that's why they call it in recovery. Right. You're in recovery. You're working on it every single day of your life. You're so. never out of it. No, no. You're never but, out of it. Yeah. So, well, listen, Jill, it's been a fast hour. Um, really appreciate your insight. Uh, I do want to reach out to you and talk to you about some projects that I'm working on here in Cedar Rapids and some exciting, um, some exciting uh, things that we're going to be in initiating uh, that I'd love to get your input and get your, uh, your wisdom and expertise. Sure. I would love it. I love to partner with people. I love it. We're on the same path, my friend. 
<laughs> How do people reach you? So you can follow us on social media to end the stigma. And it's the number two. People realize that the two symbolizes Scott and I, my twin brother. So to mm -hmm. end the stigma. So we're on Instagram, um, Facebook. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, Jill Chickowitz. So you can, if you can't find that, you can Google night for Scott and you'll find me pretty quickly. <laughs> C-I-C-H-O-W-I-C-Z. Yes. It's a hard one. <laughs> well, it's cause it's on the screen. That's the only reason I know how to spell That's it. That's so. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a Listen, hard one. <laughs> um, well, uh, here's to Scott. Here's to Seth. Here's to Prudence. Here's to all the, all the people that we care about that are no longer here, but they're here. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, let's keep our advocacy and let's purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. So thanks for being on the show. Awesome. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it.